0: Hello, and welcome to the Take as Directed podcast. I'm Janet Fleischman, Senior Associate with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today, we're really thrilled to be joined by Professor Quresha Abdul-Karim, one of the world's leading AIDS researchers who has made pioneering contributions to understanding the HIV epidemic among young people, but especially among young women. Kuresha joins us today to help us better understand the multifaceted challenges of addressing HIV AIDS in South Africa among young women. I first met Kuresha in South Africa in 2003, and since then I have found her research on and her commitment to the isu- these issues, especially on women and girls, to be both impressive and often very sobering, revealing the critical structural and biological dimensions of the AIDS crisis. Koresh's biography is distinguished and extensive. She is a professor in clinical epidemiology at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, an honorary professor in public health at the Nelson Mandela School of Medicine at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, She's an expert advisor to UNAIDS, PEPFAR, and NIH, and she was the principal investigator of the landmark Caprisa 004 tenofovir gel trial, a microbicides trial, which was an important scientific breakthrough. Koresha has received numerous prestigious national and international awards, including in 2013 she was awarded South Africa's highest honor for her contribution to the response to HIV. Koresha's research has led to game-changing discoveries in the way we think about the AIDS epidemic, in terms of both the social and biological conditions that facilitate the spread of the virus. During this special two-part podcast series, you'll hear from Koresha on both of these distinct, though intertwined, aspects of her research. In the first episode, I will ask Koresha about the social and economic, what we refer to as the structural drivers, that help explain the dramatic differences in HIV incidence in women and men at dif- in different ages, as well as the factors that contribute to harmful gender dynamics and inequalities in sexual decision-making power. Next, in part two, we'll dive deeper into the understanding of key biological conditions that Koresha and her colleagues have discovered increase both a woman's risk of infection while simultaneously decreasing the efficacy of known HIV prevention tools. Now, to get started with part one, the social and structural drivers of HIV in South Africa, I want to thank you, Koresha, for taking the time to sit down with us during your brief visit to Washington. So to begin with, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in AIDS research, and what led you to your focus on women and girls?
1: So it's a very long story that goes back more than 30 years ago. Uh, but I'm an infectious diseases epidemiologist, and in eighty eight I was a student at Columbia University, uh, because uh epidemiology training and generally uh public health was seen as subversive by the apartheid government. So there were no schools of public health and As an activist uh, in the 70s and 80s, I uh, started to understand better the health disparities along racial lines and uh, quite accidentally uh, learned about epidemiology. And the thing that attracted me to it was that it was both a very rigorous science and the other was the social justice component. And there were two ex-South Africans who... Where at this day uh, had left South Africa in the late 50s, early 60s, um, because they had started to plant the seeds of epidemiology and were uh, applying it to show uh, some of the um, the impact of apartheid uh, to the disadvantaged uh, communities there, and had to go into exile. So in the late 80s, they set up a training program to have South Africans come in about one or two each year uh, to train at Columbia University. So this is in 1988, and uh, I'm here with my husband who is also training uh, in the School of Public Health as an epidemiologist. And as we, um, as we explored New York City, It was quite striking when you went to, for example, Greenwich Village or the east side of New York, um, the very visible face of AIDS. And then you go to Harlem and you go to Bronx and just the different ways that HIV was spreading in the city and uh, during the year we were here we had many presentations from a variety of people including the co-discoverers of hiv um the dissidents at that stage and and uh, there was so much that we kept getting um you know in seminars in workshops in the classes about this devastating epidemic unfolding and uh, and we also had people come from Africa. And I started to uh, wonder why is it we, we're not seeing AIDS in South Africa as was being experienced uh, in the rest of Africa. <clears throat> and the thing is, when the first reported cases of AIDS was made in the U.S. in the early 80s, uh, we did see uh, a few, some cases of HIV in men who have sex with men and also in hemophiliacs who had uh, received uh, unscreened blood and blood products. So on my return to South Africa, I uh, wanted to look at how can I give back from that privilege and opportunity I had of training uh, in the U.S., what would the best application be? And as I spoke to my friends who worked in the blood transfusion services, they started to share with me, because by then every unit of blood was being screened for HIV, that there is a generalised epidemic that's emerging. In other words, this was no longer an epidemic in MSM populations. They were seeing infection in the general population of blood donors. So I did the first population-based survey in northern KwaZulu-Natal in 1990. And um, what the survey showed was that the prevalence of infection was less than 1%, and two, that women had four times more infection than men. And when I did the age and sex disaggregated analysis, I found this very sharp difference of women acquiring infection uh, in their late teens and about five to seven years earlier than men. So that was it. I mean, I didn't set out to study young women or HIV in women, but those were striking data. I did two more uh, surveys in this um population in 1991 and 92, and that uh, didn't change the basic uh, characteristics of what I was seeing in terms of age-sex differences. It uh, The alarming thing was the um, almost doubling of the infection within 12 months. <coughs> so what I started to see um, uh, you know on the brink of establishment of democracy in south africa There's this you know unbanning of the extra parliamentary parties the uh, n- negotiated settlement dis- deliberations are going on and at the same time as all of this was going on we had exiles from con- who uh, people were in exile in africa in other parts of the world coming back and all in all this optimism and hope of democracy you had this rapid spread of HIV taking place. So it was quite a challenge, because um, we couldn't wait for democracy. We um, had to start to respond to this epidemic. So right at the outset, you know, as I was doing the research to try and quantify the epidemic, understand how the virus was spreading, I was also simultaneously engaging civil society and the political parties, uh, both in government and outside in government, and sharing that uh, information that was coming through.
0: Maybe you can jump forward and give our listeners a sense of what the epidemic looks like now, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal, where you work, mm-hmm. more broadly in South Africa and Southern and Eastern Africa, in terms of the prevalence among adolescent girls and young women and the devastation that it's causing. What are the numbers? What does it look like?
1: So if I have to you know, draw those graphs again, which I do, is um, the y-axis went from 0 to 10 in 1990. And already by age uh, 15 to 19 years, 6% of the adolescents were infected. Today, I have to do a y-axis that goes from 0 to 100. Because in, um, overall in South Africa, we have uh, 20% of all the infections that are occurring globally. Although we have less than 1% of the global population. The picture of early acquisition of HIV in young women, 15 to 19 years, continues. It remains about you know three to six times higher compared to yeah, their peers. We still see infection starting in men in the sort of late uh, mid twenties, um, mid twenties going on, but. Um, So I would say the picture is still the same. We have young women acquiring infection five to seven years earlier compared to their male peers. We see infection in men around age 25 uh, continuing. And uh, in fact, uh, what's changed is the magnitude and the severity. So if you go into antenatal clinics, for example, uh, in KwaZulu Natal, which is on the east coast of South Africa, it has eleven health districts, and uh, almost all of these eleven districts have um, quite severe epidemics, um, substantially worse than uh, the the national figures and the average. Uh, uh, some people estimate about two years ahead of the rest of the country. But if you take pregnant women, by age 16, one in ten is already infected with HIV. You go to age 20, it's one in three. By age 25, it's every other woman. And uh, now, even though we have treatment available, you know, by age 30, you're looking at about 70% prevalence, like seven zero percent prevalence. And with men getting infected around their mid-twenties, by age thirty, even amongst men, you have this about forty-four percent infected with HIV. So if you can imagine walking into a rural community in one of these high burden districts, there and the you know mean age of the population is about thirty-five then you have uh, more people infected with HIV than uninfected.
0: And I think it's difficult for people here to fully grasp what that means for those families, those communities, that country. Um, what's driving that epidemic? What are the both the social economic factors that are driving it and the biological factors yes. that are driving it?
1: So... These days, we have technologies that enable us to sequence the viruses. And uh, in a population based survey, for example, if you take uh, individuals with a high viral load indicative of a recent infection, then you sequence the viruses and you can create clusters of people that have the similar virus. So, although you don't know who was the first person to get infected, what you're able to do is say, well, here's a cluster of men and women who share the same virus. And uh, we sequenced um, about 1,500 individuals with this very high viral load. And what we've been able to do is generate a schematic that I think has been really informative in understanding The spread of HIV in these communities, where you have an unprecedented high HIV prevalence but continue to see high incidence rates and it goes back to that 1990 observation of young women getting infected 5 to 7 years earlier than men but now we understand in a much more granular and nuanced way exactly how that's happening so in the schematic if you can imagine three groups of people young women under 25 men 25 to 40 years and women 25 to 40 years. And if we compare the viral sequences that are there, what we find is that young women are getting infected with HIV from men who are five or more years older than them. So these men are in this 25 to 40 year age group. In fact, if you take 15 to 19 year old women if there's, uh, they are all getting infected from men, where at least there's an 11 year age difference. And once you get to women 25 to 40, you find that they're getting, the age difference is just about 1.1 years. So in other words, what's happening is that as people get into, men and women get into that 25 to 40 year age range, They're both looking for lifelong partners and stable relationships. And if we only had that, if we only had 25 to 40-year-old women having sex with 25 to 40-year-old men, this epidemic will die a natural death. But what's happening is about 40% of the men 25 to 40 years are also having sex with women under the age of 25. And so what's happening is that these young women are getting infected some of them um, advance and age to the 25 to 40 age groups they're now having stable relationships with their peers and the men are recently infected these women are infecting these men some of these men are infecting women 25 to 40. But because we have this pool of under 25 year olds repeatedly getting infected we have the cycle of viral transmission. So if you want to stop or break these chains of transmission, we can't simply focus on young women under 25. We have to also find the men uh, 25 to 40, women 25 to 40. And to some extent, we see some of the women 25 to 40 years in health facilities. And about 40% of them know their HIV status. When you go to men, uh, 25 to 40, women under 25, about one in five know the HIV status. So you've got this high rates of new infection taking place. Um, maybe even the antibodies have not developed yet. So if they have a test, a uh, regular antibody test, they may not even show up positive. But in the meantime, this is where a lot of the new infections are coming in and continuing to spread. And
0: maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, that term that one hears in South Africa <laughs> about blessers. Yeah. What does that mean and how does that fit in with this pattern of transmission? Yeah.
1: So I'm not even sure where the term "blesses" actually arise from, but I would not do something so flattering to call them blesses. But uh, what we're learning is that these uh, relationships that young women are having with older men uh, tend to have some kind of transactional component to that. So some of it is the seduction of being desired by an older man. Some of it is that these older men have resources. And um, and the sort of one extreme form is uh, these young women who would... Um, Uh, like to have a cell phone and airtime and wear a particular brand of jeans or travel or eat out and have good meals is they come from very poor backgrounds and they see, oh, if I can use my body to leverage some of these resources. So I think... um, there was a dating app uh, where some some uh, some of uh, some people described this relationship as if you have this older man in your life, it comes with all these blessings. And so this was the blesser thing. I know uh, Minister of Health, and I personally actually don't um, really like this terminology because it kind of reinforces something that's quite negative in a positive way and, uh, in my conversations with uh, community members, for example, community leaders, uh, one of the things I do is when I show the data, is is this like an acceptable norm in this community? And you, um, and without fail, they say no. We really do not think this is appropriate behavior and uh, desirable for young women in our community uh, to be having sex with these older men and uh, and particularly the risk of getting infection uh, and or be pregnant and not completing schooling and dropping out and becoming uh, caught up in uh, perpetual cycles of poverty and dependence.
0: Where does the violence factor fit into this, the exploitation, violence, school dropout, poverty?
1: Can you paint that picture for us? So I think what we're learning increasingly is that both uh, young men and women are experiencing violence in some form or the other so the um, the violence could be physical emotional uh, it could also uh, verbal kind of uh, abuse uh, and so when you see a combination of all three types of violence being experienced then you see risk is also higher in these kids. So kids who have experienced two or more forms of violence tend to be more vulnerable um, to uh, depression. They, uh, They tend to be more depressed. But also the sort of life trajectories are very different So they are more likely to be engaging in transactional sex. They're more likely to be in relationships where there's more violence and abuse and sort of masculine identity, feminine identity, and agency is very much shaped by experience of violence. So you asked about school dropout, for example, and what we find is that young women particularly if they finish high school, their risk of acquiring HIV is reduced about sevenfold. So there's a, a strong protective benefit of completing schooling. And it doesn't matter what the quality of the schooling is, but just finishing high school um, it, it puts them on a very different path. Compared to women who don't, and what are reasons for women not finishing high school? So, in a country like South Africa, where all schooling, including tertiary education, is free, particularly if you come from very poor communities, you're the first person going to university, etc. The opportunities are there. And the first thing is we see early sexual debut. Now, early sexual debut. Uh, with peers, for example, leads to pregnancy. Early sexual debut with an older partner gives you pregnancy and HIV. So whether they was falling pregnant is one of the issues that results in school dropout rates. So if you have to look, for example, in the communities I work in in KwaZulu-Natal, you have equal numbers of girls and boys coming into high school. But within a year or two, we lose fifty percent of the girls, and that loss of the, of the young woman is largely due to pregnancy. So some have pregnant uh, are pregnant, some are pregnant and HIV infected, but the school dropout rate is very high, and although they can come back to school, they just now, that person who made them pregnant has disappeared and they're having to look after themselves and their baby. So it's very unlikely for them to come back. And um, of that original cohort that starts off uh, equally in high school, less than 20% finish high school. So all the economic opportunities are different. Uh, they're having to take on responsibilities as ad- adults before the cognitive uh, ability for independent and autonomous decision-making has been established, et cetera. So all very closely intertwined.
0: This is such an interesting and important moment for the kind of work you've been doing uh, and the new attention that has been associated with the PEPFAR DREAMS program, South Africa's She Conquers program. Can you describe for us a little bit about the impact of DREAMS in South Africa, some of the new data that has come out, as well as the South African government's response in She Conquers and how that connects with DREAM.
1: So I think both are very important initiatives. And, uh, you know, uh, both are trying to keep young girls in school HIV-free, not having children when they children. And uh, those are all uh, part of uh, recognizing that, uh, you know, Girls who complete high school have a very different. Not just the women, but their families also fare a lot better. So many, many years ago in the eighties, there was a so intervention called Go Triple Triple F, and part of that was you know all the indicators we needed to to move people from uh, sort of low uh, income type characteristics to middle-income characteristics and have the population having better health and better health outcomes. And the triple F was really, uh, most of that was about the importance of education in women. So it fits in very well with well-established evidence in terms of the importance of um, educated women in society for societal transformation. All the component pieces of it is very good, and uh, she conquers also. You know, takes from the constitution in South Africa the importance of women. You know, we unique in having about 40% of our politicians uh, are women, and there's lots of opportunity, equal opportunities. But the constitution, the policies, etc., are not getting translated on the ground and so both dreams and she conquers is really centrally about recognizing the importance of young women's vulnerability and how we need to have specific interventions to move that forward I would add that a shortcoming, I think, in these programs is exclusion of young men in the program. So the fact that we have a lot of female-headed households, uh, that young men are growing up without male role models, without father figures, and uh, so uh, how do they... Create um, their identity and what is masculinity, etc. So this period, where even though young women are already at very high risk of acquiring infection, and young men are not, is the opportunity because those same young men, in a few years, are going to be those young men 25 to 40 years. So we have to start some way in terms of bridging these gender power disparities that really underlie some of these differences that we're seeing in terms... uh, Because HIV is just a mirror of the divergence that we're starting to see in society once women reach the age of secondary sexual development. And that if we want to alter that... (laughs) The HIV, fertility control, uh, opportunities to start promoting preventive, promotive health, thinking about schooling and autonomy and empowerment are all part of that. And combining these efforts for both young girls and young boys, I think will uh, will do a lot in terms of uh, even uh, adding some synergy to the DREAMS and She Conquers initiatives
0: so we've talked a lot about the challenges and in closing where do you see the most promise the most hope in addressing the challenges of young women young people and hiv in africa
1: so i think uh, uh, i think we have at least the beginnings of what we need to um, enable us to even consider conceive, uh, imagine an AIDS-free generation. Uh, and now it's up to us in terms of how we use it and uh, how we target our efforts and uh, ensure in the process by getting young people to also own this challenge that uh, we can realize that vision of a AIDS-free generation.
0: Thanks, Croatia. And thank you all for joining us for today's episode of our Take as Directed podcast and part one of our conversation with Professor Quraysha Abdul-Karim on her work and the challenges to addressing HIV among women in South Africa. We'll be back next week with part two of this discussion, where we'll dive into some of Quraysha's recent work to discover key biological conditions that enhance our understanding of what is fueling HIV acquisition in young women. As always, we invite you to subscribe to Take as Directed so you never miss our latest episode, and you can be sure to catch part two of our talk with Croatia. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.